The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Peter Tharlarsen, EMEA editor, and I'll be your host this week. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Nikos Satopoulos of BC Partners, the global alternative investment firm. Uh, Nikos is chairman of, of the Portfolio Management Committee at BC Partners, member of the Executive Committee, and also leads the firm's investments in telecom and media. He's been a BC Partners since about 2005 and was previously a partner at Apex Partners. He started his career with Boston Consulting Group in London. We chatted about how managing private equity portfolios has been challenged by the pandemic, how the response of governments and central banks has shifted the investment landscape, the outlook for telecom and media industries, and much else besides. And Mikhail Stepopoulos, uh, welcome to the exchange. Thank you, Peter, and very, very pleased to be here um, today. Um, it's, uh, it's, these are testing times. So, um, uh, but I look forward to, to our discussion. Well, and obviously normally, Nikos, when you and I meet, we meet face to face. And as is the, uh, uh, the nature of these things at the moment, um, uh, we're both in London, you're in your house and I'm in my house and where we've been spending much of the time. Um, and, uh, and obviously this, this conversation is taking place virtually, but um, I guess, Maybe just to kick off this this, this discussion, um, there's a lot to talk about, but I really just wanted to ask you about, about your experience of the last six months. I mean, BC Partners has a big portfolio of investments. Uh, uh, companies like PetSmart, the re pet retailer, Springer Nature, academic publisher, uh, Taneo, global advisory firm, broad range of, of, of companies. So when a global pandemic comes along like this, how do you manage a portfolio like that? What do you do? Well, it's fair to say we have been uh, laser focused on our portfolio since the start of the year. Um, there was no playbook for how to handle this kind of uh, crisis. So our approach was to truly act as partners to our portfolio companies. Uh, we offered our advice, uh, our resources, our industry expertise, and, and we really were keen to pull together uh, with our portfolio companies to, to, to work in unison. Um, I can give you some specific examples of really what we did in uh, to take uh, advantage of uh, of our resources and advice to help our portfolio companies. So we firstly we conducted uh, very regular reviews of the liquidity status in each uh, portfolio company to assess any cash needs, and that was of primary importance uh, to us. Uh, when necessary, also we drew down all available revolving credit facilities to ensure that the, the companies have ample liquidity. Uh, in some selected cases, we requested and achieved actually without exception covenant waivers from our lending banks to allow uh, for some more breathing space uh, while we're going through this crisis. Um, moreover, we assessed um, each company along four dimensions really, and we built a, what we call the resilience index, uh, which helped us understand how resilient each of our businesses is. Uh, and these dimensions were really the revenue model, the customers, the supply chain, and whether the nature of the product or the service uh, was essential or not. And, and this exercise was really helpful because uh, we found that the vast majority of our equity, probably more than 80 percent, 
was being deployed in sectors like uh, telecoms and media, healthcare or business services, which have demonstrated a very strong trading resilience. Uh, overall, I'm, I have to say I'm pleased to report that our portfolio has been in, uh, in, in very good shape. Um, while this is due partly to the investment strategy that we have in focusing on, on defensive growth businesses, it's also clear that executing our strategy response plan quickly and aggressively has been important in uh, preserving value as effectively as possible. Um, I think there, the private equity model is especially valuable in this regard, frankly, as we're able to mobilize and make um, business decisions more quickly um, than it's possible in a public market setting. Uh, we're more streamlined, we have dedicated investment teams, and we have less bureaucracy. And, and all these elements help in, in uh, periods like the ones we've been experiencing. Um, as a result of this strategy, we've seen performance hold up robustly, actually, in the majority of the portfolio companies. And, uh, and even though we had some initial estimates of potential equity needs to support the portfolio, these ended up being um, uh, proved uh, to be conservative. However, I mean, again, uh, there has inevitably been some businesses such as those in the travel sector and or in the retail uh, sector that have been more severely impacted. Um, but obviously capital management and ensuring sufficient liquidity has been key. Uh, but these are the cases that best demonstrate uh, the value really of uh, active stewardship of private equity. So it's interesting what you say about resilience. Um, I mean, I guess you probably weren't building your portfolio in the expectation of a global pandemic that would shut down large parts of the world economy. Um, but is there something that you can sort of say about how you were maybe thinking about uh, uh, companies when you were making those investments over the last few years that helped in this respect? Or is it just good, good luck, good management? Uh, a, a core part of our strategy, and if you look at it really over the past more than three decades that we've been operating in the private equity industry, has been investing in what we call defensive growth businesses. And these are businesses effectively that have that resilient, that downside protection while offering growth opportunities for, for, for us. Um, so that resilient characteristic, like that downside protection, has always been a core element of all our investment thesis. We, we tended to avoid volatile industries. Some of them tend to be high growth, but potentially even more volatile. Uh, we like more industries that, that present that, these defensive characteristics. So it has been a core part of our strategy. It has served us, to be honest, well in this crisis. But you're totally right. We didn't, we didn't design the portfolio expecting a crisis. But uh, certainly the portfolio construction that we were able to have has, uh, has helped us weather the storm that we're experiencing now. Yeah. And so, I mean, so cash management and, and, and cash preservation has been a big issue for a lot of companies you talked about looking at liquidity drawing down lines uh, potentially providing some extra equity i mean obviously the other big feature i guess of the crisis for a lot of companies has been um the the provision or the availability of, of large-scale government support you know in terms of loans in terms of uh, uh sort of furlough schemes wage subsidies etc um have you do you have a sort of a, an overall way of thinking about about your companies and, and whether or not it was a good idea for them to take advantage of these schemes or has that been more a sort of case by case decision? 
We, we did. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there has been uh, government support and, and thankfully so, frankly, because uh, a lot of the, of the companies, not just the ones that we've supported, but overall have uh, taken advantage of this. Uh, we did uh, do the same and uh, we, we took advantage of some of the government support, also with furlough schemes. Uh, in particular, I would say also with loans. Uh, in businesses where there were government guaranteed in order to uh, support the liquidity of the businesses. We started from the countries that actually really implemented those, especially the Southern European ones, like countries like Italy, which was the first one to be hit severely by the, by the pandemic. And, um, and when other countries uh, also started implementing those, including the UK, by countries like Spain, for example, we also applied and, and did um, take some of these uh, government uh, support schemes. Uh, so I would say it was, it was something that we shared the know-how between the various countries we operate, but uh, it was a bit done on a bespoke basis because different countries have uh, offered different uh, support schemes to the portfolio companies. I see. And then just just on a sort of on a practical level, I mean, obviously, um, you know, you're you're spending part of your time, obviously, most in, in normal times, you'd be spending part of your time uh, uh, looking after your existing investments and part and part of your time just sounding out and looking at potential new investments. How did that sort of that that time division change in this crisis? And and also, how uh, hard or easy was it to um, sort of be connected to these companies when you weren't getting on a plane and going and seeing them on a regular basis. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a, new, a new reality for all of us. Um, the reality is that uh, in these uh, unprecedented events of this year, frankly, have meant that all the potential investments, uh, new investments have had to take a backseat as our first responsibility has been to protect the assets that we already own. And, and that certainly goes for myself uh, personally, but, but uh, for all my colleagues. And frankly, I think for most of, our, of, uh, of my colleagues in our peer group, uh, for other private equity funds, um, with the current market volatility, it's, it's also unsurprising that M&A has, and, and I would say will remain uh, subdued with fewer investments uh, made and fewer exits, frankly, also over the shorter term. Um, however, uh, those of us who have been in this industry for a long time have seen how private equity can capitalize on such periods of uh, volatility and with significant amounts of dry powder uh, to be put to work, we have seen some increasing uh, interest in, in some cases, in some less typical um, types of deals. So where I've seen more activity and frankly, where we have been also um, spending some of our time when we were looking at newer investments have been, for example, in public to private transactions. Um, we have looked at transactions where they were divestitures from some large corporates who needed uh, liquidity to, to uh, weather the storm of the crisis. We've looked at uh, rescue financings in some cases, uh, particularly in those industries that have been more severely impacted. Um, we also reviewed uh, opportunities in mergers uh, where we felt they could create opportunities for some of our uh, portfolio companies. Uh, and it's fair to say we've seen also some growing enthusiasm, I would say, for private equity firms taking minority stakes in some businesses. 
Um, this is an interesting development for the private equity industry, and it's actually a good example of the kinds of opportunities that can be found in today's environment. Uh, these minority stakes can be made in public businesses, um, which have traditionally been inaccessible really for private equity, as they have no need for outside money. Um, however, in an environment where financing is very limited and, and raising capital in the public markets was extremely difficult, private markets and private equity in particular has become an attractive source of capital. And we've seen a few examples of this uh, too. Um, I, I mean, personally, I think there, there were two ways that at least I think about investments in this environment really. Um, one is to think about sectors that have been heavily disrupted uh, and therefore pose an interesting investment opportunity. Um, a good example of this is the sports sector, uh, which have been interesting to consider. It has a unique and valuable content that is offered and also the fact that there are a number of different stakeholders involved. And we've seen also a lot of our peers now starting to look at that sector because of these characteristics and because of the potential disruption and evolution of that, of that industry. Um, the other uh, way to look at, um, at investing is to look at sectors that have demonstrated impressive resilience. Uh, I would say telecoms and media is a good example of this. Uh, demand has remained very high throughout the pandemic for telecoms uh, and media services. Uh, after all, who would have canceled their Netflix subscription when, uh, when they have been in lockdown? Uh, and the business model is very well suited to periods of volatility or economic downturns. These are often uh, subscription-based businesses. Um, they have recurring revenues. They're cash generative. And these are all characteristics that certainly we ourselves at BC Partners uh, look for as part of that defensive growth mindset that I was mentioning before and consider to be highly attractive, especially in times like this. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, at the beginning of this, uh, someone I was talking to uh, said something very perceptive, which said that the thing about this crisis will be not that necessarily it will change huge amounts of things, but that it will accelerate things that have already been happening. Um, and so things, ideas that were sort of maybe a little bit radical or a bit, a bit extreme will sort of come into the mainstream and, and, and trends that are happening. You mentioned Netflix, you know, obviously more people are going to be sort of uh, used to the idea of downloading, watching streaming uh, movies or whatever in their home at the end of this than, than, than at the beginning. Um, and I guess talking about some of those things you mentioned, you know, sort of the, the investments in telecoms, possibly the interest in the sports sector, is that something that was already bubbling away or is that really something new that's come along where you think we've never really taken this seriously before, but, uh, but now maybe we should look at it? It has been bubbling away and as one of our core sectors really on TMT, we have been certainly trying to identify opportunities um, that we can invest in. But uh, generally, I would say sectors like this, healthcare is also another example as a sector, but sectors like this have actually become even more attractive now, if I may say so, because of that resilience of their business model. So um, as I mentioned before, if you do have a chance of putting money to work and actually our industry has plenty of dry powder and they have to put it to work, um, you have to look at, at sectors that provide you that, that resilience, that have business models that are very much subscription based, that are must have content uh, and where because we just don't know how the world is going to look like uh, tomorrow in a few years, at least provide you that downside protection 
and, and uh, resilience. So it has been bubbling, has always been a focus. It has been a core sector of, uh, frankly, BC and a lot of our peers. Um, but this sort of pandemic has brought it even more in the forefront of uh, one of these industries that uh, I'm pretty sure it will continue to attract a good chunk of the capital. Hmm. I want to pick on something you said. You talked about, you know, there being opportunities to to make investments in, uh, in minority investments in, in publicly listed companies, uh, which, as you, you say, is some, not something that companies typically uh, want or, or, or feel that they need, but this creates an opportunity. On the flip side, I would say, I would say also there's been uh, probably generally a bit of a reluctance on the private equity side to make those kind of investments because your investors will say to you, I don't need you and your, uh, you know, kind of all your expertise and the fees you charge and everything uh, to make these investments on my behalf. I can, I can buy this stock if I want to. So is, is, has something changed there? Are people thinking differently about that? First of all, um, let's, let, I, I want to make sure that it's clear. It's, it's more by exception than the rule here that we're making minority investors or we're considering making minority investors in, uh, in public companies. What has really changed, I would say, is more the supply and demand uh, equation here, that the historically public companies would not reach out to uh, private capital or private equity for, uh, for money, partly because we are probably an expensive source of capital, uh, the, given the returns that we target. Um, and they have cheaper ways of, uh, of accessing capital if and when they required it. This crisis unfortunately meant that the financing markets were not as open as they used to be. And um, we ended up being in some cases sort of the provider of capital of last resort for some of these public companies. I repeat, this has been more the exception than the rule, but historically um, these opportunities were not even offered to, to our industry. Now, to your point about our investors, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, a lot of investors do not necessarily um, want us to be making this type of investments. And I think you would only see our industry making this type of investments when they're comfortable, not, alone, not, at all, not only with the asset quality and its prospect, but also potentially with the governance that comes with that minority investment. If, you, if we end up being just purely a passive minority investor of a public company, then chances are this is not something that you will see a lot of us doing. Uh, if actually that minority investment is, is um, uh, followed by some proper governance rights uh, and also the ability also to exit in the way that we would like to exit at the right time, then uh, I think you may need a few more of those. That's interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit about public market valuations. I mean, obviously, I know you're, you're, you're focused on the private side of things, but, um, you know, you're in the business of taking companies private sometimes and also uh, taking companies public uh, uh, when you're as, as, a, as an exit sometimes. Uh, we've seen this dramatic sell-off followed by this very sharp bounce, uh, particularly focused on, on, on big technology companies. Um, uh, a lot of people scratching their heads and trying to understand uh, the way the, the markets have evolved and, and, and how people, how, how investors are looking at things. I just wonder as a sort of, as both a potential buyer and a potential seller, are you, are you more of one than the other at the moment? 
We, uh, first of all, I have been equally um, surprised, and probably is the right verb, um, on how well the public markets have held up uh, during this crisis. Uh, it was a bit counterintuitive that in moments like this, people will continue to invest in, uh, in owning uh, stocks. I think it's, in my mind, it's a reflection of a couple of things. First, it's a reflection that there is a lot of liquidity out there and and uh, that liquidity is looking for a home and and in and one home for this is indeed the public markets uh with interest rates uh where they are and and also probably where they're planning they're going to be in the foreseeable future it's it's unsurprising that people are looking for some sort of a return and uh, outside the private private market context uh the public markets still uh if you look at it on a long-term basis are offering that return so it is potentially one um, area of, uh, of making a, a return. The other reason is that you saw that the, the actual results um, of the public markets, uh, the, the companies who are listed, have not been as severely impacted as people may have expected. So the fundamentals of most companies, I wouldn't say all of them by definition, but most companies seem to have held up uh, and that gave some comfort to investors to say, well, for the, for the short term, probably there might be some volatility, but longer term, these assets are probably going to be more valuable. And therefore, I will go and buy um, some shares on those. Um, and, uh, and therefore, I think the combination of ample liquidity, the combination of the, liquid, the, the results of these companies, um, and also the fact that um, the reality is that uh, on a P basis, some assets or some industries may still not necessarily be seen as so expensive as people think, um, has uh, continued to, to see that uh, stock market valuations um, staying high. So as you say, as a, as a seller, uh, this is relatively good news for us. And, and naturally, we do have a portfolio uh, combined between our two funds at the moment of about 30 companies. Uh, so at some point, some of those will have to exit uh, in the short term. And, and the public markets have always been for us uh, one exit route which has been available. As a buyer, um, I am uh, naturally seeing it the other way around. And, uh, and I was secretly hoping that there might be some adjustment. Um, but it's not... Uh, it's not uh, long-lived. There has been some small adjustment, as you said, especially for tech, uh, tech stocks. Um, but my expectation is that the markets uh, will likely will continue to go to the upper trajectory as opposed to downwards. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about just generally is, is, is leverage. Um, I mean, we've seen this situation where interest rates now are, long-term interest rates are even lower than they were before. And obviously there was there was a bit of volatility in all of that, but, um, but, but the debt markets have become roaring back. Um, this, particularly combined with, with sort of all the dry powder in this industry, the private equity industry you mentioned earlier, um, are you being sort of forced to change the way you think about how much leverage is acceptable for, for, for companies that you buy? And uh, or are you sort of sticking to your, uh, to your criteria on that? As a, as a firm, to be honest, in, uh, we have never been one of those um, investors who were always seeking to maximize leverage when we were putting up our portfolio companies. 
um, naturally leverage boosts the returns. So it's 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 one element in a capital structure that we are keen to to have uh, to generate uh, bigger returns. But we have never seek to maximize it, uh, especially at the risk of uh, increasing financial risk for the uh, company we're investing in. Um, I've also seen, and that's partly has been the difference in these crises versus the global financial crisis, where um, the percent of equity in the transaction has been really high uh, compared to what it was back in the global financial crisis. Hence why you've seen very few, uh, I would say, defaults in the, in, the, in the leverage buyout market. And I think you will continue to see very few defaults with the exception, as I said, of some industries that have been most uh, hard hit. Uh, like travel or retail, um, and uh, and therefore we have not necessarily adjusted massively our our leverage uh, thresholds. But to be honest, we were never very aggressive in these leverage thresholds. Um, I've seen most of transactions today tend to have at least a 30% equity cushion in the in the debt uh, to total capital. Um, this was substantially lower in the previous crisis. Um, I do not see that uh, changing this time around. So uh, with interest rates remaining low, everyone is trying to take advantage of the availability of, uh, of debt. It's good that the financing markets seem to have opened up again and, and they are offering this uh, available debt at uh, relatively attractive rates. So every one of us is, is going to take advantage of those, but we, by definition, have to remain prudent. And I guess the flip side of that question then is, is, is your returns and the returns that you can sort of think you can achieve. Um, in a world where, where interest rates are negative or zero and, and across a large part of the, the developed world, um, should you just be aiming your sights down a bit in terms of what you what you think you can get out of potential acquisitions? Um, the short answer is I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so, and we're not, uh, certainly at BC Partners. I mean, the, despite the significant macro and political uncertainty across the global markets, I would say that our private equity industry continues, first of all, to make and sell investments because that's our job. Uh, it continues to raise capital, and actually it, it continues to generate uh, strong returns. And the reasons uh, for this are, are a few in my mind. Uh, firstly, I do think that the private equity industry has a structural advantage as an asset class. Um, and the active ownership in particular is, is probably the most important one of those. This means that we can affect change, we can influence uh, outcomes, especially in, when in situations where the private equity firm is the controlling shareholder, which, to be honest, is the majority of cases. Um, also, our longer term oriented nature encourages an investment and a value creation approach that looks through and can withstand cycles or crises, for that matter, like the one we're experiencing now. And that's the benefit of patient capital, which allows businesses to grow and to evolve without the pressure of quarterly reporting that you see in the public markets. Now, in addition to this, our industry has also proven uh, to be able to evolve. Um, it is a growing industry. Uh, it's one of the beauties of this is that when a sector is growing, it's able to accommodate a number of uh, different business models. And, and our industry has continued to transform to ensure that it's not just meeting 
the changing investor demands, and there are plenty of those in a growing industry, but it also continues to explore new avenues of uh, value creation. Uh, you've seen this, for example, with the introduction of co-investment um, or, for example, secondary opportunities. And, and finally, I still am confident that we can continue generating superior returns, mainly because of our ability to attract and to retain talent. Uh, this should not be underestimated. Uh, the success of any private equity firm ultimately is entirely dependent on the strength of its team. Uh, the industry's ability as a whole uh, to recruit um, and, and also to, to, to find uh, successful, focused, insightful, I would say self-motivated, dedicated uh, individuals is essential to our continued success. So for, for all these reasons in my mind, I do think that our industry will continue to generate uh, genuine and superior risk-adjusted returns. Um, despite the difficult times that sort of the world is going through today. Yeah, because obviously there's been a debate that's, as you know, has raged over the years and has, has sort of uh, has, has, has revived again recently um, about the level of those returns. Um, part of the discussion is about to what extent those returns need to be adjusted for the for the financial risks that that uh, that, that private equity investments involved, um, but there's also then a discussion about what those returns look like when you've deducted the fees that you charge to uh, to, to to recruit and retain you the talent that you you talked about earlier. Uh, I just wonder how do you when you're faced with those questions how do you how do you respond to that? Uh, the, way, the way I respond to that is that if you look at this asset class over the three or four decades that really has been uh, active, um, but not, not over a shorter period of time, uh, but over that longer period of time, you will undoubtedly see that it has generated superior returns than probably any other asset class. Uh, and it certainly has generated more than the public markets, which a lot of people including, frankly, our, our investors are comparing us uh, to. Um, and it should be. There has to be some illiquidity premium when an investor is investing in private equity and in a private equity fund, given the, the closed end uh, fund nature of those. Um, but you will see that actually our industry has been able to generate uh, superior returns over a longer uh, period of time. Uh, if you look, of course, in our industry returns and compare them to the public markets returns, which I know some reports have recently done over the last decade or so, then you may actually observe that these, these returns are not that superior to the public market um, returns. But I, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that we have experienced probably the biggest bull market, at least pre-COVID, um, uh, that we have ever experienced in the public markets. So comparing the returns of the last, call it decade, in the public markets, which has been the biggest bull market period ever, to the returns of private equity and saying that they're very similar, it's, I think, a, a bit of a, of a short-term um, approach. And I do think if you look at our industry on a, on a longer-term basis, which should be the basis of looking at it, you will see that these returns, first of all, are, are superior. And potentially, I would even argue that the fees to generate these returns are also justifiable. A robust defense. Um, you talked about the changing demands of investors. I just wonder, I mean, one of the big 
shift that we've seen, and I guess it's only really been accelerated in the last few months, um, in the public markets has been a, 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 an increased, a sharpened focus on uh, particularly environmental, but also social and, and, and sort of governance criteria. I just wonder sort of what kind of pressure are you under from your investors to incorporate those principles into your investments? And, and how do you go about doing that? It has a, <clears throat> we, we are certainly, um, it, it's an area where our, our LPs, our investors are focused on. Uh, it's frankly an area where we have been uh, uh, very active uh, um, on various fronts. Uh, and not, not because really our, our investors are, are focused on it, although we are taking this very much into account, but because we have seen the benefits of, of having a strong ESG policy, not just as a firm, but in particular with our portfolio companies. So we as a firm have certainly uh, implemented several uh, ESG initiatives across the board. We have, uh, um, every time we make an investment during the due diligence, we are um, understanding whether that company complies with the ESG standards that we have. Uh, and if not, what needs to happen in order to do so. After we make the investment and this company becomes a portfolio company of ours, we have a, a very strict uh, checklist, almost I would say, of what needs to happen in various areas, not just on environmental, but as you, as you say, on social responsibility and, and the governance in particular, to make sure that uh, they are, we, all the companies are operating at the same standard and the standard that we would like, and frankly, our, our investors would like as well. Um, we have uh, an ESG uh, officer who is uh, looking after and basically has a primary responsibility of ensuring that we are looking uh, actively and monitoring the uh, performance and implementation of all these ESG initiatives in our portfolio. And we're doing all this stuff and more, and frankly, um, uh, along those lines, because we do think it has a positive impact on the portfolio and ultimately it will have a positive impact on our investment. Um, I think this trend is, is there. I think is, uh, this trend is there to stay. Um, and I think it will be um, a big negligence from, from all of us in our industry if we don't pay serious attention to this, uh, to this effect. Okay, um, I just I just wanted to finish up maybe just with with one final question. Just 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 thinking a bit again about about how you work. Um, you know, I would imagine that normally uh, you'd be traveling around a lot. You'd be meeting people. You'd be going to visit companies. You go and look people in the eye and decide whether or not you can support them. I mean, how long do you think we can just for your industry? How how long do you think people can carry on working in the way that they have been for the past six months? Um, is that sustainable over the long term? Um, if there is one thing I would say I miss, in addition to, of course, not seeing my colleagues uh, on a daily basis at the office, given that we've been working remotely for the most part of six months now, is the fact that uh, we're not able to meet management teams of potential future uh, investments, uh, to meet founders and families, uh, that we have been historically able to, to, to meet and relate to and be able to convince them to sell their companies to us. And uh, for me, that has been the biggest sort of um, 
uh, element that I miss the most uh, because it's very difficult to interact, to win the hearts and minds of a seller or of a family member or of a founder over Zoom or any other medium than, uh, than uh, seeing them in person. Uh, and, uh, and to your point, I do not think it's going to be sustainable uh, that we continue operating like this. I think this, uh, this crisis has um, made us realize that there are certain elements of our job that can be done more efficiently without travel. And I, and I actually do think that this will be uh, the case going forward. So that's a sustainable change that will happen, not just in our industry, but generally in the way people interact in the way we do business. Uh, some, some uh, for example, uh, board meetings that, that uh, we constantly had to travel and to do, maybe some of those could be supplemented through a, uh, a Zoom or, or any other uh, video interaction. I think what cannot be replaced is the the face-to-face -face interaction especially when you want to meet a management team or a seller of a company that would you like to buy and uh, and that um, may happen but i think if it does happen it will lose a very big element of judgment and interpersonal relationship which is core in in investing which is core in assessing risk um, and which is core in uh, in uh, making sure that we are um, very good investors. So I really look forward to, to having this back uh, into our day-to-day -day life, um, but always under the uh, proviso that uh, we're all healthy and, and safe. Absolutely. Well, I, I would echo that. Um, Nikos, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us uh, on the exchange. And uh, I guess I hope that uh, uh, we also can uh, can can continue this discussion face to face at some point in the future. Thank you, Peter, and I look forward uh, to that face to face interaction very very soon. That's our program this week. Thank you to Nikos Tatopoulos for taking the time to chat with me. Many thanks also to our producer Freddie Joiner in New York. Be sure to subscribe to the Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio fixes. And check out our latest views at breakingviews.com. Thanks for listening.